This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Audio editing and bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Social experience points. The Neanderthal Conspiracy. And our top ten movies of 2015. Where we talk about murder. Right. Murder of Crows, that is. Atlas Games' macabre masterpiece of murderous mayhem. Murder of Crows is a card game. It's got five basic kinds of cards, one for each letter of the word murder. You win by spelling the word out in front of you. But each card also has a snippet of flavor text. And when you spell murder... You can read your card's flavor text out loud in order to hear a clever little story about how the homicide happened. Like magic! Murder of Crows is easy to learn. And gorgeous Edward Gorey meets Caligari. The demo crew at Atlas sells this game like crazy when they show it off at conventions. But somehow it remains less well-known than it deserves. Ken and Robin to the rescue! Exactly! Now you and I, Ken, can be found in Murder of Crows! That's right. Anyone who buys Murder of Crows as part of this limited-time promotion will get special Ken and Robin cards for their Murder of Crows decks. We're pretty great, too, in the parlance of the game were three crow cards, which means it's hard to stop whatever nefarious no-good we get up to. And as always, Tom Denmark's art is wickedly beautiful. And spot on. Uh, yours looks fetchingly Betrachian. The deal is this. Head to atlas-games.com slash Robin. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Murder of crows. And get the Ken and Robin promo cards. You may never have the chance to commit such foul deeds again. Foul deeds perhaps inspired by the need to read out loud URLs. <laughs> That's right. Not not with the two of us, anyway. Head over to atlas-games.com slash murder, Ken and Robin. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, follow the link in the show notes. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the beneficent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive tell us we've once more entered the convenient and comfy confines of the gaming hut, and here in the gaming hut, rather than stabbing orcs, we befriend them, because today we're talking social experience points. Robin, lead us into this uncanny concept that is, in fact, the way that everyone else lives their lives all day. Right. Uh, so I thought we would uh, spitball a bit around the idea of how you start to uh, design a new game engine around an idea, and the idea here, as you suggest, is that you are accumulating social capital as the measurable thing in the game. As I always suggest, uh, it's important to have a core activity in any role-playing game, and here the core activity is accumulating social capital. Uh, now, the uh, my usual formulation for a core idea for a role-playing game is two parts. Uh, one of which is you are X who do Y. We have the Y already, accumulate social capital. So, Ken, what sort of a group of characters uh, do we want to pick who are accumulating social character before we, or social capital before we move on to start to grapple with that uh, set of mechanics? Because I think that it's always important to meld uh, setting and what you're doing in the game with what you are then building to enable you to do it. So, uh, 
Pick us a setting in which we are accumulating social capital. Well, I think that we need to lean into the social capital part of it, because if we just pick a standard bunch of adventurers wandering a post-Tolkien mystery land, then the element of social capital gathering will be subsumed in the occasional orc slaying. So I think what we would rather do is move it into a environment that is primarily social capital driven and to a lesser extent stabbing. And so I'm thinking something along the lines of the court of Louis the 14th, where you have all manner of witches and conspiracies and magic and strange behavior and the occasional sword fight. But mostly what's happening is you're trying to rise and fall in the estimation of the sun King, right? Right. And that nicely with the uh, element of witchcraft and the supernatural gives us a nerd tropey hook to overlay onto the history in order to uh, draw people in where they're saying just baldly, uh, this is a game of accumulating social capital that might appeal to uh, one out of six uh, potential members of your group. But we want to get that number all the way up to all of them. And uh, that that setting is going to bring us closer to that. So what are the uh, features then of that uh, particular milieu uh, that uh, how did people in the setting, accumulate social capital in history. They either, uh, they, they had a number of routes to it, which is one of the things that I like about it. Either you're born with it, right? You, you begin as a, as a duke, and so everyone has to pay attention to you and agree with you. Or you win uh, fame in some sort of exploit. You might have uh, won a battle for France on the frontier, or you might have invented something, uh, you know, uh, philosophical and chemical that, that impressed the, the local savants. Uh, you might... Uh, sleep with someone famous, which is another way to accumulate social capital rapidly. Um, and you might be a, uh, a sensation for some other reason. Either you have a, a poem or a play that everyone is talking about, or you're wearing a very outrageous coat or something like that. Anything to get your name mentioned by the aristocracy. So you get invited to the arist- aristocracy's parties so that you can then uh, rub elbows with them. And ideally a little of their uh, lush panoply of gems will fall into your hands. So we are now uh, beginning to point toward the set of character templates, uh, which can be uh, whether we want to make those hard templates like character classes or loose ones like uh, packages of uh, abilities that you then heavily modify. We've got a number of types that we can use that you choose from the outset to build your character around and give you a convenient starting cliché onto which to, to lock around and then start to customize. So we've got your uh, aristocrat, your uh, artist, your lover, uh, your scientist, and I'm, I bet there are a couple of others in there that I'm not naming. But we've got those templates that we can then start to uh, build out from. And so if, uh, for example, if we go back to our uh, F20 example, we see that in that game, the you mostly accumulate experience points by beating up enemies and taking their stuff uh, to different degrees and different iterations of, of D&D and its relatives, uh, and by overcoming other obstacles. And again, it's different from one version to the other. Um, and you do that in all sorts of different ways that express your specialty. So that indicates here, I think, that the analogy would be that the lover obviously has a different mechanism that they use to acquire uh, more social influence, and I think let's let's start calling it influence rather than capital because it sounds let's let's say jargony, and it's it's one word instead of uh, two. So uh, you would then set about determining uh, different ways that people could use to uh, gather up these uh, 
points. So how would we begin to start to break down for each of the uh, types, how you would do that and make it feel different for each type? Uh, well, there is, um, I think what we can look at is there's a number of different possibilities in terms of the location or the, or the dungeon room, I guess. Uh, in some, in, in many, many cases, sort of the standard is going to be the levy, the, the big session where they call all the nobility of the area together for a big, a do, a party or a, uh, royal agenda item of some kind. You know, he's going to declare war on the uh, hated Dutch or something. And so you have a bunch of nobles and other mixed people pulled together in, in a levy. And so levies are like the dungeon. And within the levy, you might uh, have a conversation, you might have a flirtation, you might have uh, a, a duel of repartee uh, in which you have to make the other guy look like a, a churl and, and you look like the guy who can control himself in the duel of repartee. Um, you might also have a uh, expressions of favor from the, the sort of NPC level aristocracy, the royal dukes and, and such that you can't even begin to aspire to. Uh, unless this is like an epic level game where one of you could be raised to become first minister in the land or the king's mistress. Um, but by and large, those would be like your Odins and your, um, uh, Orcuses in the setting where, you know, they're, they're powerful and you can get favors from them by, by proper supplication. But the chance of you replacing Odin or Orcus are pretty much zero. So when you are, uh, dealing with other people at the levy, is influence in this world a, zero-sum game in which you are taking influence away from other people. There's a uh, basically kind of a set amount of influence at the whole court, and you are trying to drag away uh, other people's influence in order to step up yourself? Or is there a growing pool of influence where you as a character would never uh, lose influence, but would only continue to accumulate it? I think what you would probably want to have, and you could justify this even socially, is that it's a pool of influence that is static unless some outside event changes that. So it begins static, but in a war, uh, the pool of influence might grow because a general might win a great victory or something, or uh, Benjamin Franklin might come to court and, and impress everyone with his awesomeness. And so you could have new sources of influence that show up, but by and large, it's a relatively limited pool. And it's always going to be easier, even if it's a growing pool, to get influence at someone else's expense than it is to build up your influence at ex nihilo, right? It's going to be easier to show up the stodgy admiral by winning a, a naval battle uh, and thus gaining points at his expense than it is to go out and, you know, win a naval battle and gain totally independent uh, plaudits. People are going to are, are going to be more likely to say, but how come that admiral stood in your way? So how you want to play it. Because it's easier to get points by showing up the admiral, but you, then you make the admiral mad at you. So uh, do you go easy and, and, uh, and possibly bite you in the butt, or do you go more difficult, but mostly socially immune until people say, well, it's easy to take influence from other people. I'm going to take it from these newbies. Right. And you presumably also, in addition to having antagonists who are allied with factions who want to uh, take your influence away from you. You also presumably have patrons and right. so that you w might attach yourself to a victorious general or uh, try to make your losing general uh, more victorious in order to then uh, bask in his 
reflected glory and accumulate points. And by discussing, you know, the impact of naval battles or uh, the uh, what's going on down at the Opera Comique or uh, what's going, uh, what's happening at the uh, Royal Academy of Sciences, we are then moving towards other things you can do other than hang out at parties and talk that accumulate social influence for you or that you can then leverage and turn into social influence. So right. You, you would do these things out in the world. And then once those things become officially known at court, usually through gossip or through a report, you know, from one of the king's ministers or something like that, that's when it becomes social influence. You can go out and, you know, invent all of the uh, alchemical diamonds that you want in Ghent or somewhere. But until you come to Versailles and show them off, you don't get social capital for being the Comte de Saint-Germain. Right. And most of the time, you can be reasonably assured that if you have fabricated diamonds in Ghent, that as long as you head along to the palace and show them off, that you'll be uh, fine and get your points and move up in the structure. But some of the time, there's the threat that someone else will scarper in and try to prevent you from cashing in your worldly accomplishments into influence at court. And so you have to be careful that the, you know, the Bravel alchemist doesn't... Uh, put powder on your diamonds and cause them to uh, uh, fade away, or perhaps just say, well, this is a splendid thing you've done. The king, of course, uh, now is going to uh, take your diamonds for the treasury, and because I have floated this plan to him, I, of course, am getting the credit for it. And so there's, uh, there is the tricky syndrome here where we're proposing something where you can gain points that are taken away from you, and people uh, in uh, real-life decision-making as well as in gamings are... Uh, much unhappier to lose a resource that they consider themselves to have than to uh, not get a resource that they don't have yet. So, uh, But I think you need to have that in this game in order to uh, emulate the sting of a setback at court, that it doesn't, it won't feel punitive enough uh, like the real, uh, you know, sort of backstabbing world of skullduggery that uh, we're talking about here or or that exists in all sorts of other uh, situations from uh you, you know uh scheming uh high schoolers to uh corporate boardrooms corporate boardrooms or whatever that all of these things that it's a uh you know it's sort of more fun for you if you uh, take something away from somebody else and ergo the threat always has to be that uh, the somebody else's can take something uh from you and so uh, we're beginning to see uh, a pattern to this activity. Now, the question is, how do we get the uh, players to work together in order uh, to help each other build their influence? And uh, one of the obvious suggestions is that if you just show up at court in most situations, unless it's like a Viking mood or something, and boast on your own behalf, that is considered unseemly. But if you have someone else to show up at court and say, hey, these diamonds from Ghent, they're pretty realistic looking, aren't they? Well, they're the work of alchemy. Here's my uh, brilliant uh, friend who just uh, fabricated these. That means that uh, you have a reason to work with the other players in the party in order to uh, buff each other up, so to speak. And you get some of those points too, because again, you are gaining influence by association with this person that you're touting. You're shining with reflected glory. And that is, of course, why your patron is patronizing you in the first place is because he looks on you as a, as a possible comer. And so as long as you don't do anything really dangerous and stupid, you can retain patronage from this guy and he will get more points as you get points. So you'll be getting, uh, say, 100 points for your activities, and then he will get 
uh, 10 more, or possibly you'll get 10 and you'll get 100, depending on how realistic you want to make it. So, yeah, the the notion of being able to give and loan and provide influence to other people is a core mechanic, and you have to be able to do that not just for each other, but also for NPCs, right? You want to be able to reach out, literally, to uh, the beautiful courtesan and provide her with patronage so that she can eventually uh, flip out and, uh, or flip her leverage with a different noble into patronage for you. You'll, you'll be building these chains of influence that go through the people who owe you favors or the people for whom, uh, you have done favors, right? Right. And so, uh, as in, uh, a more typical procedural game where you, uh, you cash in experience points for added abilities, you are, uh, cashing in experience points in order to cement relationships to various other people in the structure at court and uh, barring some significant action in the plot, those can't be uh, stripped away from you. So you might, uh, you know, temporarily have an alliance with, uh, with the count over here over the uh, uh, getting his new brand of pork products into, uh, into Paris and having everyone swoon over them. But until you spend uh, the points, that is just sort of an ephemeral thing that is in play in one scenario only. And as you continue to go along, just as in uh, with the D&D character, you can see all his new feats and powers and magic items and stuff. Here you have a, a relationship map where you've purchased your relationships to everybody and it continues to expand. Now, the thing about experience points or influence points is that those uh, sort of just imply a continual cycle of accumulation and you need to, I think, put a some sort of a narrative frame on that most of the time in order to be uh, satisfying, assuming you're going to play for a limited time. So what could be sort of the big story arcs of this setting that you would then uh, be working toward so that once you accumulate all of this influence, you uh, put it into play in a big finish? What would those big finishes be? Well, the big finish is some way to actually uh, affect the, the dealings of these mighty figures um, either, you know, the goal is, no, I'm going to make sure that I become the king's favorite mistress or favorite, as they used to call them back in the day. Um, and that's my goal, right? That's like you get to build your own castle at the end of D&D. Uh, it also might be a thing where uh, our goal is to bring down uh, the hated uh, Necker, right? That, that Swiss jerk. Uh, we're gonna, we're gonna ruin him and, and tear down his influence, or we're gonna bring down, uh, the king's brother, Duke d'Orlans, who we know is plotting against the throne, but no one will ever believe us because he's got so much social capital. And so we just wanna undermine him and, and destroy him. Or we want to, you know, win the war against the hated British. That could be the goal. And we need to develop so much social capital so that we can overrule the stodgy admirals who hate, who hate our brilliant naval strategy, and we can overrule the stodgy churchmen who won't let us use alchemical fire. Uh, to, to burn their ships and we have to get enough influence to launch a successful invasion of, of perfidious Albion. And there is some prospect in this game where your characters could literally die if they go off on a naval campaign and uh, their ship sinks or, or they get executed for witchcraft. They get executed for witchcraft or somebody slips some uh, poison into their uh, oysters. Uh, but more often you will, the threat is of social death of being eliminated. Exiled to your estates. Yes. Uh, and so uh, what are the sorts of things that could cause the, uh, your character to be forever banished and force you to uh, start with a new character afresh? A uh, les majesty, obviously, if you offend the prerogatives of the king in some way, 
Uh, that's one of the, that's the big one. Um, you can probably be banished, uh, for committing, uh, the wrong blasphemy at the wrong time, offending sort of st- standard social strictures. Uh, certain powerful fourth year, your enemies at court can contrive your banishment, which would be not the sort of permanent death, but like one where you can resurrect yourself by spending social capital or by doing a thing out in the provinces. So you've got to uh, keep a pool of, of FU influence points in exactly. order to buy that off when it happens. Right. Um, and, and that's something your enemies will always be trying and you'll be trying it on them, right? You, you want to get, uh, the hated, uh, Duc de Chaumont, um, uh, removed from the cabinet and sent to manage the frontier or something. Well, I think we've, uh, uh in this, uh, short segment to spitballed an, an interesting thought exercise game, if not an actual game anyone can go out and publish, and therefore we can uh, say that we have achieved enormous, enormous influence, so much so that we can afford to uh, travel via this commercial to our next segment. The Escapist calls it gaming's most insane supplement. After a century of secrecy, three months of non-stop publicity, and a record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, the Dracula dossier is finally available for you, the home listener. Not just Dracula Unredacted, the true first draft of Bram Stoker's novel, an after-action report for British intelligence, annotated by three generations of MI6 analysts, but also the massive director's handbook that allows you to follow the clues dropped in the pages and in the margins of that uncanny document. Follow them, that is, to any of 200 different encounters, eerie objects, dangerous locations, and conspiratorial organizations, and enigmatic NPCs, any of which can be an innocent, or turned by Edom, or a minion of Dracula himself. Pretty clever, eh, Robin? Bet you wish you'd thought of that. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Thus creating an improvisational collaborative campaign for Knight's Black Agents, strangely similar to Robin's own Armitage Files campaign for Trail of Cthulhu. Strangely, but with more vampires. Way more vampires. Because the Dracula dossier blows the lid off Operation Edom, the rogue MI6 task force using Dracula to stop terror in the 21st century. But Dracula cannot be used. And Edom cannot be trusted. So open the dossier. And follow the clues. To kill Dracula for good. Yeah, that'll work. So let's sum up. The Dracula dossier is two books. Check. Both stand alone. Check. But combined, they create an unprecedented... Really, Ken? Unprecedented? Of unprecedented scope? How's that? Oh, uh, let's see. Both books add up to something like 800 pages. So yeah, an improvisational, collaborative campaign of unprecedented scope. Check! And Dracula Unredacted, that's Stoker's real first draft, annotated by the MI6. And the Director's Handbook, a massive collection of multifaceted encounters, are both available at the Pelgrane website right now. Check! And mate, the game is mine, I think. No, Robin, it's theirs. The murmuring of the suspicious guy in the corner who's making the Illuminati symbol with his fingers, the strange susurrus of a foreign, perhaps even alien language emanating from those two guys with the pulled-down hats over by the bar, indicate that we've entered the murkiest territory of this podcast, and that would be the Conspiracy Corner. And this time we're here to talk about Neanderthals. Now, if... uh, 20% of Neanderthal DNA survives in modern humans, particularly in humans of European descent, and 
Uh, if you have Neanderthal DNA in you, it may influence you in particular ways. Uh, uh, they are beginning to uh, correlate uh, the uh, part of us that is Neanderthal with particular conditions. So you might, for example, uh, if you suffer from depression, there's a possibility that that's a, your inner Neanderthal is beaming negative thoughts at you from inside your brain. Or if you uh, are especially prone to tobacco addiction, you can blame that on your inner Neanderthal, perhaps, which is weird because I don't think they smoked Lucky Strikes. Well, that's why they were so easily addicted to it. I guess so. They were uh, not exposed. But anyway, uh, there are those who would suggest that the influence of Neanderthals is much greater than that. They might even be, what, the Illuminati or something? Ken, can you tell us about Zukalski's Neanderthal conspiracy theory? Okay, um... Before we get to Zukalski, I want to mention that uh, Neanderthal conspiracies, they go wider than Zukalski, right? There's a guy named Michael Bradley who says that uh, because Europeans are Neanderthals, that's why we are so violent uh, to the native peoples of the world who are all simple Cro-Magnons and don't, uh, don't have the, the, the brutalities of the Neanderthals. Uh, there are anti-Semites who say that, for example, Ashkenazic Jews are heavily uh, Neanderthal, and that's why you can always tell one when you see them and why they're up to no good. Uh, but this guy is Stanislaw Zukalski, who is a Polish uh, painter and sculptor, and he had huge success in um, uh, in Poland and in America. He was part of the Chicago Renaissance, hung out with Ben Hecht. And then in 1939, at sort of the height of his career in Poland, um, Hitler happened, and Zukalski, as an American citizen, could get out, but he left everything behind in Poland. He left all of his artwork. He left all of his uh, belongings, all of his money. Everything was gone. And so he wound up sort of um, uh, living in uh, poverty and doing uh, set design and odd work for the film studios in Los Angeles. And that's sort of what he did uh, for the rest of his life. He, he never, uh, you know, the loss of Poland and then the loss of his uh, uh, possessions and his position sort of broke him. And he never really, um, uh, he, he never really recovered. But Changed from, you know, monumental sculpture to, uh, sketches and the sketches he produced, they indict, uh, the Neanderthals for being what's wrong with everything in the world, uh, specifically, uh, Lenin and Stalin and, uh, the rest of the, uh, of the Soviet uh, hierarchy, which he drew portraits of to emphasize their Neanderthal traits. So if you look at his magnificent book, Behold the Protong, which I cannot recommend too highly. Uh, it discusses the Protong language, which is the first language of the survivors of the first deluge. And there's a, a number of different deluges that happen, apparently. Right. So the Protong is the, uh, the Ur-Neanderthal culture. The Ur-Neanderthal culture. It's their, their, their language. Um, also known as the, uh, Yetinsini, which is to say the sons of the Yeti. And so the Yeti are also the Neanderthals. And so you can see, for example, uh, the Neanderthal features of, uh, Robespierre. And he draws Robespierre as a prototypical revolutionary. And look, he's such a Neanderthal. What an awful person he is. Right. Well, it's, it's easy to point out people's Neanderthal features when you draw pictures of them. Yes. You can well, point out those, those, uh, features. Certainly if you are a uh, gifted artist and caricaturist like Zukalski. And then he also has, uh, linguistic madness. He has floods. He has crazy physics. It's like all of conspiracy theory in a ridiculously well illustrated gel here. Um, and, and I, I recommend getting Behold the Protong. There's another collection of his stuff. 
another collection of his work called Inner Portraits, in which he draws the inner man, and often the inner man is creepy and Neanderthal-looking. I mean, it, it, it goes deeper than faces. He tries to sort of derive the Ur alphabet of the Protong from all alphabets by coming up with the the, ma- the master symbology of it. It's it's very um, unified field without being particularly unified, if you know what I mean. Right, and he's basically literalizing uh, something that we all or that is very common in uh, ordinary parlance, which is to ascribe our violent impulses to our primal caveman nature and also to classify our enemies as subhuman. So if you are uh, unhappy with the Soviets, as, as uh, well many people might be, it's a, an easy rhetorical thing to, to describe uh, them or whatever your chosen foe is as not entirely human and more primitive and monstrous and brutish. And so he's just taking that an extra step to creating an entire uh, corpus of uh, pseudo-proof around it. And uh, I guess our next question, as it uh, always is here on the podcast, is uh, how can we mine this and uh, make it into uh, an interesting game material while, you know, steering clear of its more unsavory tendencies? Well, I, I, one of the things you can do uh, just with a broader Neanderthal conspiracy is you can have Neanderthal traits as sort of like the beast in in Werewolf, right? Where you've got your inner Neanderthal, and if you know the Protong language, you can call on your Neanderthal genetics to do Neanderthal things. But the danger is that it will unleash uh, awfulness, right? That when you do Neanderthal telepathy, you'll lock your brain into some uh, violent reactive pattern. Or if you do uh, Neanderth- use your Neanderthal strength to break a, a bar open, maybe your hand will s- you still be by- obeying Neanderthal impulses uh, when you're not paying attention and, and it'll kill someone or, or dial a phone or, or do something that you didn't want it to do. And so you can call on this inner Neanderthal power that we all have and uh, but you have to restrain it with your Cro-Magnon self. And the bad guys are the people who don't even bother restraining it. People who are out there like um, uh, Slobodan Milosevic or whoever, who are just relishing their Neanderthal power because they use their Neanderthal power to beat down uh, peaceful, happy Cro-Magnons and, um, and dominate uh, the world. And so they set themselves up as dictators and, uh, and cult figures. And you could do that with your Neanderthal power, but if you do, then the Neanderthal takes over. And uh, so, uh, uh, I am less Yetinsini I become, I guess would be the way to do it. Right. So anybody who is whipping up fear and hatred is, uh, using their own Neanderthal power to arouse the power of the Neanderthal in the uh, broader uh, populace. And, mm-hmm. uh, just like the force, uh, there's, uh, I guess here there's no, uh, there's no light side of the, the, the proton. It's all, you can dabble in it, uh, for, uh, uh, the powers uh, for a good objective, but the uh, the means inevitably uh, will bring about a terrible end if you aren't uh, careful. So I guess the outline of our uh, Protong uh, series would start off with the characters unaware of the conspiracy at all. They've never heard of this theory, and they uh, begin to encounter sort of the uh, fringes of a uh, either local or global conspiracy to assert power over others by whipping up uh, xenophobia and fear and, and hatred. And as they move further into the conspiracy, they start to find uh, bits of the weird alphabet and 
Now, is this a world in which they can just go and buy Behold the Protong, or is it going to be harder for them to assemble all the information in this conspiracy theory? Well, uh, the good thing about Behold the Protong is good luck figuring out an underlying theory from it. Um, I think you should be able to buy Behold the Protong. I think in this world, Zukalski is like Bram Stoker is in a world where vampires exist. He's, he's seen the, he's seen through the, the veil, but, you know, the, the poverty and the, and the evil works of bad Neanderthals have left him a broken man. So you can read that book. You can read Behold the Protong. And all it does is it tells you that the conspiracy exists, that it's out there. It doesn't really give you, um, anything except a, uh, the, uh, a salutary sense of, pro- of paranoia that anyone might be gazing out from beneath their beetly Neanderthal brows at you. Right. And when was this written? The art was done in, uh, in America in the forties and fifties over the, basically over 40 years. He, he would, he would, he'd, um, after he settled in LA, he, he did his art in his sketchbooks. The book was published in, uh, 1971. No, in, I'm sorry. Uh, it was published in 1982. Uh, by a guy named Glenn Bray, who's a art, uh, aficionado. He was the guy who sort of discovered Basil Wolverton for the alternative art scene and, uh, is tied in with that underground comics world. And so Glenn Bray, I guess, is the guy who still has all of Zukalski's art in, you know, his estate. He's the executor, I guess, of Zukalskiism. And, uh, there's some Zukalski art at uh, the Polish Museum of America here in Chicago, although it is the more, um, uh, sort of pro-Polish, uh, patriotic stuff, less the so crazy the Neanderthal pre-spiral. stuff. Pre or, uh, the bits of his spiral where he was, uh, feeling, um, uh, you know, less worried about Neanderthals and more happy to be Polish. So at, at any rate, it's, it's an older book, uh, right. published, uh, subsequently after it was written. And so, uh, you know that there are these forces at, at large in the world and they're starting to have their effect on you, but you now have to figure, you know, what would the, what would the protongs be doing now? Uh, you, you don't, you know, it's, it's 2016. They've had a couple generations to, uh, shuffle their, uh, the decks on the, uh, on the Neanderthal boat and they've got some new right. scheme. Soviet communism is gone. That was their old, uh, you know, empire. Now, what are, now where are they? How, who have they decided to take over next? Are right. there, are there politicians perhaps here in the Western world who might seem more Neanderthal than others that you are mm, worried about? Yeah, Could I that be a thing that's that happening? Seems, that seems implausible. So at any rate, there, there's your template for the campaign where you basically uh, begin to find the first indications of it. You're drawn in deeper. You figure, you find out that there is a Neanderthal conspiracy. Now you have to work out uh, who exactly is a part of it and what they're trying to do and how do you stop them. And, uh, guess what? There's all these cool Neanderthal mind and, and body powers that you can draw on as you become more aware. But the danger is that when you get to the final stages of the conspiracy, that you will just then join it. Right. Or, you know, you might uh, topple over the uh, demagogue politician and then uh, try to replace him. So uh, that gives you your uh, struggle between the two sides of your nature as you're beginning to uncover uh, this, uh, this whole secret world. Uh, so I guess that gives us our, our big framework. Are there any other little details or grace notes that it would be uh, sinful to omit before we move on? Uh, one fun note is that, uh, Zukalski befriended George DiCaprio, who was Leonardo DiCaprio's father. So, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is your, is another one of your doorways into the world of Zukalski. Uh, he, uh, has done a, a Zukalski retrospective. So he's got that going on. He would obviously be able to provide you with influential entree to the world of Hollywood. But of course, Leo DiCaprio has got kind of a smooshy Neanderthal face, doesn't he? 
that's kind of interesting. And, uh, maybe that's why he keeps playing all these, uh, characters that are all matted with hair and, 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 and growling at people and going crazy is because his inner Neanderthal is coming out in his films. That's how, that's what he's doing to try and keep it in check. That he's right. gone off. And, you know, he's probably still on the, on the side of good because, of course, he's, he's read the book. But, uh, after he goes off and, uh, stops an Eastern European dictatorship from uh, uh, spiraling from authoritarianism into outright tyranny, then has to come back home and play Howard Hughes in the aviator to, to work it all out. Right. Or it, it becomes one of those things where he's your trusted uh, friend and, and patron, and only to discover that he is actually the Neanderthal uh, conspiracy's chief arm here in America. And you have to, uh, almost as though it were a mediocre Hollywood script, you you realize that your patron was part of the conspiracy all along. Right. Well, that's something that each individual GM should uh, leave up to decide partway through is whether uh, he's a straight up ally or a Mr. Johnson who's going to uh, uh, mess you over because, of course, uh, everyone will expect that from Leo DiCaprio and uh, you want to keep them uh, guessing for as long as you can. And uh, I guess since we're talking about Hollywood, uh, we should uh, have a, a commercial and then uh, talk about Hollywood some more. There's an idea. And possibly uh, other film capitals of the world. What did Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666? He discovered the way that alchemical truths can be... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not biologically related. But related by their love of role-playing. That's the best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfagelm. Ask for Ask. Ask Fagalm by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. The whir of the projector, the smell of popcorn, and the sight of incredibly handsome people, incredibly tall, tell us we've entered the Cinema Hut. And here in the Cinema Hut, as we so often do, this episode drops right around the Oscar weekend. Am I right, Robin? I think I've scheduled it uh, properly. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll all learn together. It drops, as I say, right around the Oscar weekend. And so that is when uh, Robin and I discuss our top 10 films in the popular countdown format. Yes, because we're, we're civilians and not professional reviewers. This means that we don't get screeners or free tickets to movies. And so it takes us a while to catch up on all the prestige movies that are suddenly uh, dropped 
into theaters all at the same time in uh, December. And so uh, I guess to lead off, uh, I have to indicate that there are still a few titles that I haven't seen that could conceivably, had I seen them, have wound up on this uh, chart. And that would be uh, The Revenant, uh, Carol, and uh, Room, I think, are the three uh, that are, would most likely show up had I seen them. And I'm still looking forward to and seeing them. At this point, I should mention that I, despite a, a good bit of effort, was unable to see the new Michael Fassbender uh, Macbeth, which I am certain would be on my list had I seen it uh, based on reviews and based on, you know, the script. I know the script guy. He's really good. Yeah, he's uh, he's been around for a while. But, he's top notch. Uh, yeah. And also in the uh, contenders uh, category, I did not see Bridge of Spies, which might uh, turn out to have been. Uh, really, really good as well. Might have made my list because of the subject matter and because of the Coen brothers doing the script treatment. So Right. That one, I think, is now uh, on demand. So uh, people can dial that one up if they want. But anyway, let's uh, f- switch from uh, the top movies we haven't seen to the top movies we have. And I guess I might as well kick it off. My choice at number 10 is Spring, uh, directed by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. And it stars uh, Lou Taylor Pucci as this sort of uh, uh, rough-and-tumble uh, working-class guy who gets into uh, trouble in his hometown and decides to uh, head off to Italy for a head-clearing uh, vacation. And he uh, runs into a, a, a beautiful, alluring, uh, a really fascinating uh, woman played by Nadia Hilker. And uh, they uh, start to kind of uh, fall in love with each other. And it seems like it's kind of uh, like Before Sunrise a bit. It's a a dialogue-driven indie drama that slowly starts to turn into a Arthur Machen-style weird tale. So uh, I was really taken with its uh, blending of two uh, genres and also with the uh, execution of it. It's uh, evocative as well as uh, creepy, and uh, you can point to other films that have little bits of it in it uh, certainly there's uh, but uh, it's it's a combination of influences that I haven't uh, seen together and uh, I really enjoyed the way that they uh, fit together it's a cool evocative uh, film and that's spring uh, again dressed directed by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead cool uh, my number 10 is one that I suspect is on your list as well uh, Robin is Hitchcock Truffaut which we have talked about previously on this uh, very podcast uh, and it is, uh, as we mentioned at that time, a documentary about the creation of the book Hitchcock Truffaut, which was uh, Francois Truffaut interviewing Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, Kent Jones made the documentary that he wanted to make with a bunch of directors giving uh, directorial uh, thoughts, uh, mostly about Hitchcock, less so about Truffaut and less about the book. I obviously, uh, as I said before, might have gone a different way, but what you do have is a great examination of film by people who both are eminently capable of and delighted to do so. And that goes a long way. Uh, coming in at number nine for me is Trainwreck. That's the uh, autobiographical rom-com starring Amy Schumer, uh, directed by Judd Apatow. And uh, a comedy does not uh, get enough love at uh, critical evaluation time. And uh, I really enjoyed the way that this is both uh, funny and uh, real and authentic. It's uh, not got the sort of uh, chunks of meandering stuff that go often in an otherwise laudable 
Judd Apatow written film. It's tighter than those. And, you know, it is a rom-com, so a rom-com thing happens at the end, but there's a lot more reality in the characters than you would normally expect from uh, that genre. And uh, it also, uh, I think, in my view, earns big points for unexpectedly deft comedy turns from uh, John Cena, a former wrestler-turned-actor, and even more so LeBron James, who plays LeBron James as Bill Hader's uh, best-friend-confidant character, but is... uh, not only uh, real, but uh, uh, really funny. So uh, I give my slot number nine to Trainwreck. My slot number nine goes to Laundry Man uh, by Chung Lee. It's a Taiwanese film that I saw at the Chicago Film Festival. And I liked it because it managed to combine the ghost story, the martial arts movie, the hitman thriller, all done with the visual style, though not the leaden pace of Wong Kar Wai. And all of those things together, none of them are ever done right. And when they're all done right simultaneously with that sort of rich, lurid, unimaginably beautiful, I guess sort of Douglas Sirk is the only person in America who ever made a movie even remotely like these. Um, but, uh, but the, but the quality of that, of that film just, uh, there's no weak points. There's no bad, uh, element. It's just strong all the way through. It, the, it's fundamental triviality is the only reason it's as low as nine, frankly, but it's really good. And I recommend hunting it down wherever you find fine Taiwanese film. Yes. And if that gets a release, it may wind up on my, uh, list next year. I haven't seen it, but look forward to it. Uh, this is a time to, another footnote is that, uh, Ken in his Devil May Care way includes, uh, film festival titles that have not been released in uh, North America yet, whereas I try to stick to North American release dates. So sometimes we have the same films on different lists. Uh, and speaking of films that uh, I saw at a film festival but did get a re- later release and therefore qualifies in my book is uh, number eight, Office. That is Johnny Toe's 3D answer to how to succeed in business without really trying. It's a corporate intrigue musical uh, shot in uh, 3D. Uh, normally, I do not put on the 3D glasses for, for anyone l- lower on my uh, Pantheon director scale than Johnny Toe or, or Scorsese, uh, but I uh, risked a, a bit of eye strain in order to do it in this case, and I was absolutely happy that I did. And he, uh, it's his use of 3D that I think elevates this to uh, a spot on my list because with his constantly prowling camera and very artificial sets that are not attempting to look real. He uses the uh, very artificial look of 3D in a fascinating way that I think really, you know, even more so than Scorsese with Hugo, comes to terms with that um, weird sub-variant within the medium. And uh, because Toe is always about defining his characters through their relationships in physical space. And that's something that goes uh, way back in his uh, films. And you find it in his uh, romantic comedies uh, as much, or perhaps uh, probably even more so than his the gritty uh, crime movies that he is uh, best known for in North America. And it has Chow Yun-Fat in it and Sylvia Chang. So it, that's got to be number eight. Who doesn't love that, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, I should mention, while we're mentioning things, uh, that I saw less than half of the movies in the theater this year than I saw last year. I just compared it to my 2014 list, which was about 60 movies long. Ultimately, this is about 30 movies long, ultimately. But 
I also saw 40 freaking Dracula movies in <laughs> October, which I think hmm. ate a good bit of my of my movie-going potential somehow. Drained the blood out of it. Drained the even. blood of my cinema. So, there are going to be a couple of movies that people will say, but Ken, where is Sicario? Where is, you know, any number of wonderful movies? And I will say, they are waiting for a time when I am not watching Dracula movies. Anyway, we move on to my number eight, which is, uh, perhaps over-cutely, The Hateful Eight by Quentin Tarantino, which is a movie that I suspect I bumped up a little bit because it is a Western, and I love Westerns. I give them a genre bump, as many of our listeners no doubt do for science fiction or superhero movies, but uh, it's shot in 70 millimeter, which during the scenes that that's actually relevant, really, really works. The sort of establishment of the isolated cabin, uh, all of the bits on the road. Then, for whatever reason, the movie becomes a drawing room uh, murder drama. And so the 70 millimeter is kind of wasted, which is one of the reasons it's as low as it is. Uh, the other reason is that it seems a little bit like a retread of territory that Tarantino has already walked just as profitably in movies like Reservoir Dogs. Uh, so, that said... All the performances are terrific. The, the writing is in indi every individual scene is great. I think that the overarching structure is maybe a little weak, but all of the individual elements are so terrific. And it is Tarantino who, like the Coen brothers, when he does a misfire, it's still usually an A minus movie. So I would put the hateful eight at my number eight. Um, I was super on board with that, uh, film at the beginning and got less on board with it, uh, as it went along. Uh, which is why it is not on my list. But what is on my list, number seven, is Ex Machina by Alex Garland, uh, the longtime screenwriter for Danny Boyle, I think, among others. And this is, uh, I think the thing that really captured me about this, uh, well, first of all, you know, any top ten list this year has to have a science fiction movie with Oscar Isaac and Domino Gleason in it. That just goes without saying. <laughs> but uh, this one, that's sort of the mood uh, that pervades throughout the sort of... Uh, ominous serenity of the uh, deserted natural world around the mad scientist hideout um, really sort of uh, plays as a fourth character in what is otherwise a, a three-hander. And uh, I liked the way that it uh, sort of uh, cast back to the uh, thinky science fiction films of the 70s, uh, even though it's also laid over a uh, recognizable fairy tale structure. And uh, I think it has interesting things to say about uh, wayward uh, male nerd sexuality, which I think are, is very uh, apropos at this uh, point in our uh, history. And also the performance by Oscar Isaac as the, uh, the sort of a mad scientist who seems very real in his sort of venture capital spouting, uh, you know, nerd alpha way, I think was a really compelling characterization that uh, takes a character that would otherwise be uh, just sort of a, a, a symbol and makes him seem uh, very real and uh, and very current. So that film really worked on me. That's uh, Ex Machina. As previously hinted, I uh, missed a lot of movies this year, and Ex Machina is one of the movies that I missed, um, which is a shame because I'm also a big fan of Alicia Vikander, who plays the robot, I believe, in that movie. Yes, yes, and it's a really great performance as well. And I, I think that one's on, on the Netflixes. So it is, it is. This, is. this is how little excuse I have. My number seven... Uh, is The Martian, a uh, fun-loving comedy of a man on Mars <laughs> yes, uh, enjoying all comedy. the potato salad he can eat. And sure, you'd say, what an 
What an unprepossessing theory for a comedy, but that's what the hilarious stylings of Ridley Scott and Matt Damon can do for you. No, actually, I, th- I read the book. I loved the book. It was very sort of uh, Heinlein juvenile in its sort of affect and, and feel. I enjoy that kind of SF. Uh, you know, jut-jawed Americans uh, solving things. I, I enjoy that uh, story. And uh, Ridley Scott took the book and he put it right up on the screen pretty much exactly as you would expect. Uh, Mars is uh, deadly and glorious. Uh, Matt Damon is uh, funny and desperate. Uh, the Americans are jut-jawed. Uh, the Chinese come and save the day at the end. So it, it's got something for everybody. And, you know, it's a movie in which science is kind of both the hero and the villain, which makes it a little more thoughtful, I think, than the standard um, uh, rocket ship Galileo type uh, storyline. I'm I'm pretty happy with it, and I really enjoyed the movie. It did everything it needed to do. Um, so that's my number seven. That's on my to-see list. Uh, like all man versus nature movies, uh, even when they're well done, I am slow to get to them, or sometimes don't get to them at all. Uh, my number six is uh, uh, perhaps the most obscure item on this list, uh, and some of you uh, are chuckling ironically since you haven't heard of half of these. Um, <laughs> But uh, this is In Her Place. Uh, this is a film by Albert Shin. Uh, it's a, a Canadian-produced film shot entirely in Korea, in Korean. Uh, Albert Shin is a Korean-Canadian director, and I think that's his first film, and it's really great. It's a uh, naturalistic character drama, and the premise here is that there's a pregnant teenager who lives out in the sticks with her farmer parents, and... Uh, the parents have made an arrangement which uh, she seems to be sort of mutely, tacitly accepting, at least for the moment, for the uh, wealthy uh, woman as part of this couple to come and live with them for a period of many months and pretend that she's gone out to the country to have her own baby, when really she's waiting for the teenager to have her baby and then take it back to the city and uh, pass it off, uh, not only as her adoptive child, but her actual biological uh, child. And as the uh, film goes on, the power dynamic between uh, the mother, the uh, woman who wants to adopt the child, and the uh, teenage girl uh, sort of develop and become more complex. And it turns out also that the um, young father has not been let in on this plan and may have other ideas. And this just really uh, struck me as a great example of realistic, naturalistic uh, drama that uh, delves into its characters and uh, plays off the conflicts without ever having to uh, mess with melodrama. And it really had a, a big uh, effect on me. So that's uh, In Her Place, uh, directed by Albert Shin. Uh, speaking of Man Against Nature movies, uh, my number six is The Revenant, starring our protong buddy, Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, as uh, uh, Paul Glass, a actual... American frontiersman who gets actually left behind by the actual Jim Bridger uh, in the Canadian wilderness, although in uh, the real world, it was the American wilderness, but we're out of wilderness, so they had to go to Alberta to find something equally desolate. Now, is Alberta just playing the American wilderness? Or? Uh, Alberta's playing the American wilderness. Alberta stars as the Missouri Territory. And also part of Argentina stars as it. They had to go all the way to Tierra del Fuego because they ran out of filming time in the snow. Uh, apparently they filmed the movie in sequence, which strikes me as a terrible idea, but I'm not, uh, in a Ritu, So what do I know? Was it supposed to, uh, follow, uh, the emaciation of uh, Leonardo or something? Yeah. I think the, the goal was to make the, the characters age in real time, especially, um, uh, uh, the guy playing, um, 
Will Poulter, the actor playing Jim Bridger, uh, very clearly sort of goes through a maturation process that I suspect is not all makeup. I think it's uh, taking a, a gifted child actor and putting him in the can- in the Canadian wilderness for six months. Yeah, yeah they're just steeping him in the snow. And I should say it's Hugh Glass, not Paul Glass. I got that backwards. Um, anyway, uh, he is uh, left behind in the woods by evil Tom Hardy and not as evil Will Poulter and follows them to get his revenge. He is the revenant because they buried him in a shallow grave, but turns out you can't be burying Leonardo DiCaprio. He will crawl back and uh, get you. And it's a great uh, sort of a, a, a legiac film in a lot of ways for that for that lost American frontier. Uh, it was missing maybe some passenger pigeons, but it's got everything else that you'd want in that kind of movie. Uh, there are both good and bad Indians, which is nice to see that we've got the dangerous Arikara and the friendly Pawnee. And you have uh, within those two groups, you also have differing motivations and levels of uh, human uh, fellowship, which is nice to see similarly as you do with the, uh, with the Americans, with the white guys. So there's a lot of great stuff going on. It's a terrific historical story. It's a, it's a great Western. Uh, the only problem is that for whatever reason, I did not fall completely into it in the way, even that I did Birdman, which is the last inner film I saw. Uh, I kept, coming out of the movie and saying, goodness, we're taking an awful long time to climb that glacier or something like that. So that's why it's as, as low Man as number six. Man versus nature. Man versus nature. It'll do that. And so that's why it's as low as number six. But it is a great movie. It's well worth seeing on the big screen if you can get to it. Uh, it's uh, in Oscar contention, so it's probably still in theaters somewhere. Um, and uh, I recommend it. It's terrific. It's just not top five terrific. Well, uh, since we're talking Oscars, I think I better... Uh Go and get some chips and chip dip to accompany the uh, rest of this segment. So uh, while we're doing that, let's uh, step out uh, into the lobby for commercial, and then we'll be right back. This episode is also brought to you by the shadowy strike force that is Arc Dream Publishing. Their Kickstarter for the Delta Green role-playing game has come to an end. With smashing success, funding a case locker full of stretch goals. From scenarios to setting notes to fiction and even a play. A play about a certain yellow king. But as the team of Dennis Detweiler, Adam Scott Glancy, Kenneth Height, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stolsey frantically burn the midnight oil to bring you all that rogue counterintelligence goodness... You can still catch a case of Delta Green Fever. With such products as the source book that started it all, the original Delta Green. Countdown, its update to a fear-drenched new millennium. Or play the new Delta Green game with free quick start rules. They come with a scenario and pre-generated characters. Check out such terrifying fiction anthologies as Extraordinary Renditions. With a story by yours truly, or tales from failed anatomies. With a special guest story by yours truly. Not to mention Strange Authorities. Or dare to swipe the pages of the twisted grandpappy of Cthuloid zines, The Unspeakable Oath. And stay tuned to this audio space for more Delta Green role-playing news. Plus an acid-tinged hint or two of the fall of Delta Green, the 60-set gumshoe standalone game by our very own Kenneth Height. How's that going, Ken? I'm writing it even as we speak with two of my extra arms and my auxiliary brain case. So brace yourself for the coming flood of Delta Green from Arc Dream Publishing.
And we're back with all of our uh, delicious uh, Oscar snacks at hand. And uh, at this point, I'm going to say that my number five is the aforementioned Hitchcock Truffaut. And as we've already mentioned, we've already mentioned it in an entire <laughs> previous segment unto itself in which I discussed the uh, gap between my objective experience of it, which was to think that it was a very, very good film documentary film about film and my subjective experience, which is that I, due to my circumstances in my life, found it incredibly moving. And so I compromised uh, between those two things uh, of my critical judgment versus my uh, emotional response. And so put it at number five. So that's uh, Kent Jones, Hitchcock Truffaut. Ken, your number five? My number five is They Look Like People. It's a horror film that I saw at the Chicago Film Festival. Um, I don't know that it's ever had a, a wide release at all. It, it, it uh, debuted at, at Slamdance and then came to Chicago, but I'm sure you can find it if you look. It is directed and written by Perry Blackshear. It is a successful human story about a man who knows that people are being taken over by aliens. And uh, the actors are naturalistic and human. It's sort of a millennial version of... The Exorcist, I guess, in a way, it's very, very real and grounded, and it's also about alien invasion. And it's about alien invasion in a way where pretty much up until the end of the book, you don't know if the guy who knows that there's aliens is right or crazy. And the movie doesn't know or it doesn't tell you, and the actors give nothing away. It's played completely straight. It's super terrific. It was uh, made for, you know, probably a nickel, um, and it's just an amazing uh, ability of casting and scripts and uh, and setting even it's set in uh, millennial New York to overcome any uh, sort of, uh, of of disadvantage that it might have had because of, of budget or, or production or anything else. It's just a, a tour de force of real honest to God, human psychological horror. And I recommend it uh, without reservation. My number four is uh, an insane experimental film called, Mad Max Fury Road, <laughs> directed by George Miller. Uh, it really is an avant-garde experiment in pushing formal elements uh, utterly to the forefront. And, of course, it's a giant popcorn hit at the same time, which is an incredible act of magic that one uh, has to uh, applaud. It takes the idea of the iconic hero, who is uh, just sort of a stand-in for... Uh, very basic values and just dials that uh, way past 11 and uh, introduces another iconic hero played by uh, Charlize Theron. And the only moment of character interaction in the entire film is one brief exchange in which they confirm that they are basically the same character with the same iconic ethos and then keep on going. And uh, also as an incredible sensory uh, experience and just uh, the terms of its execution as a chase movie slash fight movie slash post-apocalyptic thriller. Uh, I think that it is a, a really brilliant uh, piece of uh, cinema and uh, unlike uh, some but not all of the other films that I've mentioned here will have an incredible rewatch value as well. My number four is The Big Short which is uh, directed and co-written by Adam McKay who also did Anchorman uh, with the result that this movie, which has no through line, no real character arcs, and no suspense, winds up being rivetingly watchable with moments of sort of 
black co- apocalyptic comedy uh, throughout. It's just an amazing tonal triumph, if, if nothing else. Also, all the actors do a great job. Steve Carell uh, apparently wants to make sure that The Office appears in the second paragraph of his obituary, not the first paragraph, by turning in uh, another great straight performance. Christian Bale is, if anything, the weak uh, one of the big four, uh, and he's perfectly good. Uh, it's about the um, uh, 2008 credit crash and the people who bet against it and made uh, put their money on the titular big short. It's, uh, a, like I say, it's a, it's a comedy of the apocalypse. It's a black comedy of the apocalypse. It's based on the Michael Lewis book of the same name. And it is, uh, really, really successful as a script and as, uh, much to my surprise as a film. I will, uh, uh, respond to that by saying my number three film is The Big Short, the directed Big by Short. Adam McKay. I would argue, actually, that it does have a three line, but the three line is masked by the fact that, uh, pretty well all of the characters are Wall Street sharks of various varieties. There's two guys who are sort of the up-and-coming guys who more obviously embody the through line of innocence to experience, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of your classic narrative uh, uh, through lines. And basically, uh, because they seem to be sharpers, you don't realize that throughout the course of the film, they all grow progressively more and more shocked by just how stacked and rigged and phony and broken the entire system is. And even at the big climax, when they need to, to cash in, uh, uh, there are still more shocks coming for even the uh, most uh, jaded of them. When I, uh, when this started getting Oscar buzz, I actually went to it sort of semi-reluctantly, even though I've been a big fan of McKay's comedies, thinking, how can this possibly be anything other than like one of those HBO made for cable uh recapitulations of recent current events what could what could justify its being a theatrical movie much less one that's getting oscar buzz and the answer is because uh, on a formal level it deals with exposition astoundingly well it's sort of a marvel it has to give you way more information than sort of films that i would class it with like zodiac or uh, all the president's men uh, because you not only have to understand who all the players are, but you need to understand the underlying complicated financial instruments that no one is supposed to understand because that's part of the scam uh, in order to see how they work. And uh, the most obvious ones are the, the sort of uh, sudden smashing through the fourth wall bits where uh, Margot Roby or Anthony Bourdain or uh, Selena Gomez explain complicated uh, financial details to you. But even better than that, there's a scene where the uh, way that all of these different mortgage-based bonds are related to each other that is shown to you as a Jenga tower. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, possibly the best, uh, one of the best uses of, of exposition ever, because you really have to understand that later on to know what's going on. And it's deliberately obfuscatory in the way that it is uh, set up. So in terms of that sort of uh, you know, we deal with exposition a lot in, in genre, in fantasy and science fiction in particular. And to, uh, see this sort of marvel of complicated information presentation that is uh, not just understandable, but delightfully fun at the same time. Uh, I think really, uh, that's why it got, uh, spot number three on my list. Spot number three on my list is a movie that, uh, I suspect is Still to come on your list that Robin and I saw together, uh, which made it even better. Inherent Vice. Um, hold on. Inherent Vice is a 2014 film. It's a 2014 film. It was on our, our last list. Uh, so, Ken, uh, I guess that means everything else moves up one, and you need to tell us 
what your actual number 10 was, and then the uh, people scoring at home, they'll fix their spreadsheets. That's right. Uh, everyone, everyone, uh, all I'm on left, do do change your partners. My number 11, which is now my number 10, is Spring, as Robin alluded to. Uh, the film uh, that Robin, in fact, uh, made sure to point me to, uh, the Arthur Mackin meets before sunset. Uh, it's uh, everything Robin said it was, and it has both the rom-com meet cute uh, arc and the horror movie arc, and it threads them really nicely. Plus, also, I really like the setting. I thought that the uh, natural rhythms of the little town in Italy that they were in were captured really well, and that's something that often gets short shrift in a strongly plot and character-driven movie, so I was glad to see this the Italian setting sort of uh, waking up there. So, what seems like a clerical error was just a movement toward harmony, because that means we both now have the same number 10 and the same number 3. That's right. Number 2 on my list, <laughs> back to number 2, and uh, yeah, so everyone straighten this out on their own scorecards at home, uh, is R100, a film, a Japanese film by a director named Hitoshi Matsumoto. You may know him from his film A Big Man Japan, which is a send-up of the kaiju genre. Uh, this one is uh, another, an even more extreme entry in the ext- uh, Japanese extreme uh, cinema uh, genre slash mode. Uh, and it's about a meek salesman uh, who uh, hires uh, a, a service to dispatch dominatrixes to him to attack him unexpectedly in his <laughs> everyday life. Like Kato. Yes. And oddly enough, he gets way more than he bargained for. And not only that, but the audience gets way more than it bargains for because uh, it starts to go in directions where you, wait, what? They're going there? What? Ah." And then there's a whole level of uh, sort of meta commentary that's introduced when you discover that what you're seeing is actually a uh, film that's being screened for executives uh, directed by this uh, sort of... uh, loopy kind of elderly elder statesman uh director and so you have both these the main narrative and then you have the people going out into the hallway to comment on how totally messed up it is and even when you keep jumping back into the uh putative main action uh you then get caught up in it but your jaw detaches uh, from the rest of your head at several points as you what what and it's something that succeeds in building to a big uh uh, finish the way a lot of sort of uh, meta uh, narratives uh, don't. So uh, <laughs> for its uh, utterly crazed black comedy and unforgettable images, uh, R100 is in my uh, second slot. Uh, my number two is what I suspect is your number one, Assassination, a South Korean uh, s- historical spy hitman movie directed by Choi Dong-hoon and set in the Korea, uh, the Japanese occupied Korea of the 1930s. It is um, a men on a mission movie. It's a hitman movie and it is an amazing, amazing action movie. There, there are three or four action set pieces that are just almost unequaled in the genre. Uh, the uh, main uh, actress, uh, Jun Ji Hoon, uh, is terrific, uh, as the sort of the core of both stories, the Japanese half and the, and the Korean half of the story. And all of the, um, uh, the various, uh, magnificent seven, dirty dozen, whatever, the other sort of supporting bad, uh, bad guys and good guys, also terrific. Uh, there's not a, a bad note in it. And just in terms of its scope, 
it recalls sort of the, the epic later Sergio Leone films in a way, uh, just in terms of the, the, the breadth of the storytelling going on and, and what it's trying to achieve and in fact does achieve. Uh, my number one is Assassination, directed Yay! by Don uh, Hun Choi. Uh, we discussed this at length in an earlier episode, and indeed it is my favorite film of the year. Uh, you've uh, described it uh, well. I would also uh, suggest that I really enjoy it for its fresh use of uh, very hardcore basic narrative tropes. It's got twins separated at birth. It's got uh, an utterly badass heroine. It's got great deadpan comedy. Uh, when there's uh, a wedding dress that shows up at the end of the second act, you know it's going to get uh, spattered with blood. In addition to uh, Leone, uh, there's also a strong uh, flavor of John Woo, which is uh, not exactly surprising because uh, there's all sorts of uh, Leone in uh, Woo as well. So An Assassination uh, in North America is also on your Netflixes and it's available on Blu-ray. And so I assume it is also wending its way toward other territories. So uh, yes, Assassination by far my favorite uh, film of the year. And my number one is your number, I, th I think it was four, that art film with explosions, Mad Max Fury Road, which I thought just because uh, and again, it's very, very hard to pick between it and assassination because they're both pretty much perfect. But the degree of choreography necessary to make Mad Max Fury Road work, all the cars driving in real time, the practical effects meshing with the, the, the relatively little CGI, the way that the CGI is used in ways that you would not have expected. So, for example, when the, you see the wheels turning on the trucks, that's CGI, but the sand flown up. That's real. So there's all manner of stuff that's going on behind the scenes in the, in the technical creation of Mad Max Freer Road that makes it just a magnificent piece of film architecture over and above also being a terrific road movie of uh, violent revenge thriller, chase film, and uh, post-apocalyptic uh, hero narrative. And also, uh, Charlie's Theron is terrific in it and uh, manages to sort of dominate the film in the way that, you know, uh, Mel Gibson dominated the original Mad Max series. Uh, the, the Mad Max is terrific, uh, but he is very much a supporting player in his own, in his own film. It's, uh, it's the Charlie's Theron Imperator Furiosa story. And, uh, it's just amazing. It's very, very good. Uh, yes, no accident. And so once again, we see that, uh, uh, great minds have similar, uh, cinematic tastes. And, uh, we hope that, uh, you and the audience have agreed with the uh, choices of the things that uh, we have, uh, you have seen and that the things that you haven't seen, and I think there's a nice sprinkling of obscurities there in both lists. Uh, I hope uh, everybody heads on out and checks uh, some of them out because uh, not all of the uh, great films of any given year are the ones that get the multi-million dollar uh, marketing campaigns. And that's why, um, among other reasons, you need more uh, Ken and Robin in your life. And I guess it's time for me to uh, take all of these chips and dips that I've eaten, and uh, I think I'm going to finish the rest of the dip, uh, but that's going to happen off-screen, uh, as it were. <laughs> yes. And uh, it's time for us to uh, bid you all adieu for another week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Phoenix. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Gain social XP by hitting the donate button at KennethRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such luminaries of patronage as Daniel Callahan. Our imminent Patreon is all the more imminent. We've got the reward tiers all worked out. Next stop... 
making the video for a thing that's in audio. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.